recorded live. Thank you, Brian. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 23rd, 2013. Tonight, we are going to present Against the Paul Bashers, Part 13. First, let me say that I've been having many technical difficulties with TalkShoe. No matter how I try to connect, no matter how many different no, no matter how many different internet service providers I try, and no matter how, which browser, or, or whether I clear cookies and delete my history, it, it just doesn't seem to work. At program time, I think TalkShoe somehow has my number. I have no problem whatsoever with any other website on the internet at this time. I have no need for TalkShoe, but I'm not going to walk away from it. Christogenia can function and, and probably operate programs a hell of a lot better without TalkShoe, but I'm not going to just surrender it to my adversaries. With that said, and, and let me say that there, there are people in the, in the Christogenia chat room and the TalkShoe chat room, it should be closed right now. I hope, I, I, I hope Brian has it closed. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Hello. Everything's fine. I'm doing well. You said to um, block the chat room then entirely? Yeah, block the talk show chat room entirely because even some of, some people who claim not to be my enemies have been using it for their own agenda during my program. So just block it. There's a chat room at christogenia.org. The people that aren't trolls and the people that don't have agendas are more than welcome to register at christogenia.org for an account and you will have access to the Christogenia chat room during these programs. Otherwise, these programs can be listened to from any page or from the pop-up window at, for, for, um, for the radio players at Christogenia.org or at any Christogenia website. I think I have it posted on my major sites, the Mein Kampf site and the Saxon Messenger site. And it's the top two players are the live programs. The bottom two players are always reruns. The top two players are reruns when there is no live program. And all four streams are up. Usually, unless I'm lackadaisical about it, which I do get sometimes, all four streams are up around a clock playing um, reruns of our programs. You could, I, I, listen, I, I could listen on my cell phone or on any one of my computer devices, right? It works pretty good. Okay, having um, last week taken the opportunity to exhibit the policies and motives of the so-called Bishop John Shelby Spahn, who, who these Paul Bashers had the nerve to quote, this homosexual, this homosexual lover of beasts. We shall now continue to address the Paul Bashing articles of Clayton Douglas, here we will commence from where we left off two weeks ago in Douglas's article, The Seduction, Judeo-Christianity or Pauline Christianity, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, A Different View, which Douglas wrote and published in the December, well, Douglas claimed to write, he took the credit for it, and published in his December 2003 issue of his Free American News magazine. The material being presented here tonight first appeared in Clifton Emmerheiser's Watchman's Teaching Letter number 99, published in July of 2006. I had written this material the previous February. 
It also appears at Christoginia.org as part of a lengthy compilation entitled William Fink versus the Paul Bashers. Brian, do you have any statements, comments? Well, I think Spong's little 12 theses, he's basically exposed himself. He's an out-of-the-closet atheist cultural Marxist, and if he's not, well, he's not too far off from it. So if it were, let's say, you know, 1950, and he, he didn't feel like going to the seminary, he probably would have been a card-carrying communist. At the least, he was a fellow traveler. And incidentally, I think he's done more damage to Christianity than any Marxist or state atheist Stalinist type ever could have dreamed of. Because this man, he was accepted as a Christian and people bought, in some regards, lock, stock and barrel all of his nonsense. Where, you know, Stalin comments on Christianity and no one cares except some radical Marxists who already don't like Christianity. But Spong, he's the enemy within, wearing away the foundation. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I can only agree with that. The, the um, Spong was at the vanguard of the Civil Rights March, at, at the Civil Rights Marches and the Civil Rights Demonstrations in the 1950s and 60s. And he was at the vanguard. He was way ahead. He was years ahead of most, um, but most of Judeo-Churchianity in, in the acceptance of, of um, sexual deviance into the ministry. And, and in the positions of of authority within communities and, and churches, and, and that is it, it's um his, his agenda is the Marxist agenda. It's incredible, and of course, it, it's, it's incredible that that a, a a major Christian denomination let people like that sit as leaders. It, it's just appalling. And he is the go-to man for the Paul Bashers, right? Whenever they need a source, they go right to John Spong, quote John Spong. Well, well, he's one of them. And Jacqueline Prince, the, the, the Jewish rabbi from, from the same city at the same time, who was also, Jacqueline Prince was also at the vanguard of the civil rights demonstrations in the 60s. Hmm. He, he was there, and, and his own website that makes a lot, they, they basically trumpet that. They're proud of that. He right. was one of those... Jews and 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 I think that means pervert, right? Well, he was one of the reformed Jews that he was at the vanguard of all that himself. We expect as much from the Jews, though. We expect better from a Christian bishop. Well, well, absolutely. What we should expect of reformed Jews, right? Absolutely, that they're all Jews are sexual deviants, and and the Talmud supports that. The, the Talmud is the the, the sexual deviants handbook. But the the um, the reformed Jews are usually the worst and, and the most open, usually as a rule. But the the Orthodox Jews try to put on a, a display of piety. Of course, they don't have it. Right. So these are the people that Clay Douglas keeps company with. Well, well, absolutely, and and W. G. Finlay, and and we'll be talking about it at some point this year. W. G. Finlay is is the um, he was quoted by Graeber in in his Paul bashing material. He cited on um, IsraelElect.com, which is a website that was actually constructed by someone who sympathizes with Paul Bashers, if, if he's not an overt Paul Basher himself. He posted W.G. Finlay's material there on purpose, 
And even though he also posted Clifton Emheiser's material in Compare and Swift, and, and that's fine, but, but I don't think that the Paul Beshers really deserve a voice in Christianity because they're Jews. W.G. Finlay, if, he's not a Jew himself, but he's definitely a Jew between the ears. He wrote about the learned rabbi, the esteemed rabbi, Joachim Prince, and used him as a source for all of his Paul Bashing material. The esteemed and rabbi. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that's just appalling. That that's just reviling. I, I mean, that's a horrible thing for a Christian to do is to quote a damned antichrist Jew as an authority on Christianity of any kind, and then he preys on him. Absolutely. Well, it seems to me in general the Paul Bashers. They might as well write their arguments on water because their arguments are always changing. And if they say one thing that contradicts something else, they'll get rid of this argument and bring in three three new arguments that are just as, you know, sophistry based as the previous one. That you you really can't nail them down to any one position, can you? That they, they change like the wind as a matter of convenience. Well, there's no doubt. All right. Reference 24. Clay Douglas states. It should also be added that despite Paul's modern reputation for placing women lower than men, he also penned revolutionary words about the absolute equality of all believers in Christ, a complete destruction of prevailing social codes. Now, hold on a minute here. Clay Douglas has criticized us for being racists who don't believe in equality, and now he's condemning Paul for supposedly supporting equality? What, what is he, just talking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, well no, he, he's... Um... He didn't actually write this. Yeah, he, he, he didn't actually write this, but right, he is talking out of both sides of his mouth. The, the, well, well, first, you know, this is really, this is really nefarious, right? This line, it should also be added that despite Paul's modern reputation for placing women lower than men, that's really nefarious. His modern reputation for placing women lower than men. Historically, in Greece, women were second-class citizens. They didn't vote. They didn't own property. In Rome, women could own property. Remember in the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, women originally had no inheritance and Moses had to make a special law where if, if a father had no sons, if a man had no sons, then women could inherit the family property. Right, but I wonder too that the, the term here, modern reputation, amongst who though? I mean, if someone says you have a reputation as being a, a, a drunkard, well, amongst who? who? Who's giving you this reputation? What Douglas is really doing is he's He's evaluating um, Paul's position on women in society through modern eyes and judging Paul according to modern eyes. Right. But, so, but Paul's time, he was simply um, reinforcing the standards of society at that time, and women had a second. They didn't have a secondary role as far as. Life is concerned, women have a very important role, but they did have a secondary role as far as property ownership and public affairs were concerned right. in the ancient world. And, and that's their role to this day because that's the biblical role. That, that's just the way it is. And, and Douglas is 
what Walt Douglas's writer is viewing Paul of Tarsus through the, the, the modern Frankfurt School liberated women um, standards. And essentially they poisoned the well by claiming that Paul advocated a complete destruction of prevailing social codes. They've already poisoned the well in the mind of the reader. So the reader is now going to look at this as though Paul was some social revolutionary looking to destroy the world. Right. And, and Paul was certainly not a misogynist. He was not a woman hater. He didn't demote women. He didn't demoralize women. He treated women very well throughout his epistles. What women are treated very well. He, he employs women in, in his mission to deliver epistles, and, and he commends them for that, like Phoebe delivered the epistle to the Romans. It's, yeah, yeah, this is totally biased against Paul because Paul taught, and properly so, that women should not be teachers of men in the assembly of God, and that's the law of God, and that's just the way it should be. I mean, that was the, the, the ancient standard in Athens, in the democracy of Athens. The, you know how the modern Jews are always trumpeting democracy and, and hearkening back to the ancient Greeks? Well, in the democracy of Athens, women did not vote. They were not permitted to vote. So, so that's, that, that, that democracy of Athens is held up on a pedestal as the ideal. Well, women couldn't vote. I'm, I'm assuming aliens weren't allowed to vote. And if I'm not mistaken, there was a Greek story in Athens where it was a dystopia. It was basically a sort of a comedy, a farce, where the, the women seized control of the Acropolis and tried to establish a, a feministocracy or whatever you want to call it, a gynocracy. I don't remember that from the actual classics. I mean, the story of that is, is, belongs to the Isle of Lesbos, right? But I don't remember that in Athens. I could be, I, I could have just missed it, or I just don't remember it. But I don't remember that in Athens. That the um, Douglas's ignorance of history and the contradictions of his own remarks here should be readily evident, right? First, he glosses that Paul placed women lower than men, which is not true at all, because both the Hebrew and the Greek societies at the time had placed women in a position subservient to men long before Polytosis came along. Then Douglas complains that Paul advocated a complete destruction of prevailing social codes. And that's not true because Douglas is taking Paul's remarks out of context. He's, he, he's imagining that the ancient world was like the modern world. I, I don't know. And, and neither is that, uh, yeah, you know, it's totally out of context. Surely Douglas was accusing Paul, at least in part, because he said, and, and as we shall address shortly, there is neither male nor female. Well, well, Douglas is here speaking out of both sides of his mouth, right? Right. Well, he, he, in yeah. one instance, he looks at Paul through a modern lens, and then in another instance, he wants to look at him through an ancient lens. Well, well all men and women are equal. All Israelite men and women are, are equals in judgment before God. We are equals in in sisterhood and brotherhood and communion with each other and all that is well and good but women have and have been assigned historically and in scripture a, a role in the home which was subservient to men in public life not necessarily in private life paul made very strong admonitions that husbands treat their wives with all due respect and reverence 
But in public life, women take a backseat to men, and that's the way it should be. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. That's the way it was in, in, um, in ancient Greece and in ancient Rome, except that Rome was more liberal than Greece in that in Rome, women in the first century at the time of Christ, women could own property. In, um, in Germany, and I'm going to quote from the Oxford History of Medieval Europe, Page 47. In Germany, women enjoyed greater personal and property rights in Roman societies than among the Germans, who regarded them as legally subject to their menfolk from birth to the grave. Women were property to their menfolk from birth to the grave in, in, in amongst the ancient Germanic tribes and in medieval Germany. And, and that's the way it was described by Tacitus and, and other historians. So, so Paul was, was not doing anything out of the ordinary in his teachings on the relationships of, of women and men to the community. Nothing whatsoever. All right. Reference 25. Clay Douglas states, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized in the Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul of Tarsus. The above scriptural quotation is probably the most repeated on earth, particularly when one dares to speak of the Jewish problem. It is a classic example of doublethink, and it is classically Pauline in both its orientation as well as its hidden agenda. Well, I, I wonder... Did Clay Douglas even read this before he attached his name to it? Because unless I'm mistaken, Clay Douglas doesn't actually believe there is a Jewish problem. He thinks we're the problem. Well, well, right. Clay Douglas probably doesn't believe there's a Jewish problem. I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't really care. I don't listen to the man. His Paul bashing is absolutely well, well absurd, and that's what we're here to address. So he, right. He's bashing Paul for trying to destroy the old social order. He's also bashing Paul for being a misogynist. Paul's also a repressed homosexual, and now Paul is trying to run cover for the Jews. Well, well, there's no double think in Paul's statement, and, and that can be demonstrated. And it amazes me that the Jewish problem concerns Douglas because Douglas is a um, basically quoting John Spong. He's made himself a disciple of John Spong, and John Spong was an embracer of Jews and homosexuals. And that, we made that very clear last week from John Spong's own writings. So, so how could you um, be concerned with the Jewish problem on one side? And it, it's hypocrisy. It's absolute hypocrisy because they'll look for any accusation uh, against the, the scripture in Paul of Tarsus, and, and they don't care how much, he, he obviously doesn't care how much hypocrisy he espouses. Well, the quote, the, the quote here, which Douglas takes out of context and surely does not understand, is from Galatians um, chapter 3, verses 26 through 28, and I would like to examine it at length. Did you have something to say? Yeah, before we get into that, it seems that this Paul bashing nonsense was primarily written, of course, not for mainstream people, because mainstream people don't they're not concerned about any Jewish problem. If you tell them there's a Jewish problem, they, they, they're offended and they would attack you, at least verbally. So this was basically written to undermine the foundation of the Israelite movement. I mean, th there's no other motive behind this, is there? 
Well, well, right, and, and I said that, I, I stressed that many times in the first segments of, of this series, what was that this the Paul bashing has been developed to play on the emotions of patriotic Christians, whether their CI identity or not is immaterial, of patriotic Christians. Patriotic Christians are usually racially conscious, and Paul bashing is designed to undermine Christianity and Paul of Tarsus in their eyes. And it's been effective at that at times, with certain people, but not with everybody. A lot of smart people have rejected Paul, have rightly rejected Paul bashing. Let me read Galatians three twenty six through 28. For you are all sons, I'm going to read it from the Christogenian New Testament. For you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Christ Yahshua. Now Paul is talking to Galatians, right? Primarily, he's talking to Galatians. The letter's addressed to Galatians. In Galatians chapters 3 and 4, he's teaching the Galatians that they are of the Israelite dispersions. He explains to them in, in Galatians 3, 15, 16, that only the seed of Abraham through Jacob is the chosen line, and not through the others, not through Esau, not through Ishmael. He explains to them in Galatians chapter 4 that they're descendants of Isaac, and he explains to them that the law was their schoolmaster, which brought them to Christ. He's talking to dispersed Israelites. He knows he's talking to dispersed Israelites. And he says in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of Yahweh through the faith in Yahshua Christ. For as many of you who have been immersed in Christ, in Christ you have been clothed. There is not one Judean or Greek. He didn't say Jew. He said Judean or Greek. There is not one bondman or freeman. There is not one male and female. For you are all one in Christ Yahshua. The Galatians, to whom this is addressed, were primarily Hellenized Gauls or Celts, with some Greeks and Romans among them. Since Paul wrote to these people specifically, no one else can possibly pick up this letter who has no relation to its intended recipients and imagine that Paul could be addressing them also. He's not addressing them. He's addressing Galatians. He's not addressing Kenyans. He's not addressing Nigerians or, or Arabians. Paul knew that these Galatians, Celts, Greeks, and Romans, were the lost Israelites. As he demonstrates so often in his, epistle, in his epistles, and especially here in Galatians, where he says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 28, And we, brethren, down through Isaac, are children of the promise. As I've said before, Paul certainly cannot be held responsible for the blatantly errant, Judaized mistranslations of his letters which are found in our modern Bibles. To examine parts of what Paul says here, there is neither Judean nor Greek. That's right. Judean is what the Greek says, not Jew, and there's a big difference. Judeans, true Judeans, were Israelites. The apostate Jews were primarily descendants of Cain and Canaan, through Shelah and especially through Esau. Paul knew this. Paul explained that in Romans chapter 9. He explained it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He explained the difference in Judea between the Israelites and the Edomites in Romans chapter 9. Two Judeans, the true Judeans that were Israelites, 
Paul called his kinsmen according to the flesh, and stated that they were the only people in Judea that he cared about in Romans chapter 9. True Judeans were Israelites. And most of the Greek tribes were lost Israelites, not the, not the Athenians. The Athenians were Ionians, they were Javan, they were Japethites, they were not lost Israelites. But the Spartans and the Danans, the Lacedaemonians, the Dorians and the Danans, tribally, Sparta's a city. Tribally, the people of Sparta were Dorians, the people of Corinth were Dorians. The Dorians and the Danans were lost Israel. They were Israelites. That could be demonstrated in history. There's papers on Christogenia that do that. The Celts, the Romans were lost Israelites. The Romans were Trojans. They descended from Judah. The Celts, they were Israelites. The Galatians were. They descended from the Israelites of the Scythian, of the Scythians of, of the Assyrian deportations. Right. Now, um, Bill, most people believe that the Galatians took their name from the um, Gauls and that it was a west-to-east migration, but you can actually demonstrate, and you have, that it was an east-to-west migration, not a west-to-east. Absolutely an east-to-west migration. And James Pritchard and other anthropologists and historians of the 19th century did understand that the Galatians, that the Celts, were an east-to-west migration. That changed in, in, at the turn of the 20th century. That was different. That was ignored by the publishers, by the academics. Josephus, the Judean historian, attests that if it weren't for the circumcision, one would not be able to tell apart Greeks and Judeans. That's in Antiquities, Book 12, Chapter 5. Something that should not surprise anyone who upholds Christian Israel Saxon truths. There is certainly no difference between the Saxon Celts, true Saxon Celts, Romans, the true white Romans, Greeks, the true original Greeks, or the white Greeks, not, not the Turks or the Arabs that claim to be Italians or Greeks, and Judeans. There's no difference, not the imposter Jews. They all descended from the Israelites, and Paul knew it, and Paul taught it. And, and in, at Paul's time, the, the, the differences in characteristics were a hell of a lot less than they are today in some areas of Italy and Greece compared to Germany. There is neither bond nor free. Oh, and, and even the Edomite Jews were a lot whiter because they hadn't mixed with the Arabs yet and they hadn't mixed with the Turks yet. There is neither bond nor free. Anyone who professes in the law, such as Mr. Douglas, should know that there is no permanent forced slavery in Israel, according to the Old Testament law. Slaves would be released in the seventh year of their servitude freely. There is neither bond nor free in Christ. Anybody who respects Christ would follow that law and set his brother free, right? Even Paul respected property rights of slave owners, however. So Paul wasn't trying to upset the established order. He was only referring to the Christian law, that Christians should follow, that people in Christ should, should be willing to follow. And a, and, and a slave owner would set his Christian brother free, according to the law. There is neither male nor female. For this, I will only go to one place, the challenge made to Yahshua by the Sadducees, recorded in Matthew chapter 22. 
Part of Christ's response which surely concerns the position of men and women in the age to come, as recorded in Matthew 22.30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of Yahweh in heaven. Which Paul certainly follows here. There's neither male nor female in Christ and in his kingdom. We're all the same. We're, we're all brethren, and, and we have one teacher and one leader. Clayton Douglas is basically following the Jews and liberals. The right. modern day, right? They're the modern day Sadducees. As an aside, they, I, I have a question. You, you, you pointed out about freeing Christian slaves and freeing your brother, and you know, at seven years, and of course, there's the jubilee and the forgiveness of debts. If the Edomite Khazar Canaanites today that call themselves Jews and say that you know they have the heritage from Moses and Abraham. Can they point to any point in history where they've forgiven debts on a seven-year basis or even once in their history? Have you ever known a Jew to forgive a debt? Not that I've ever heard. Not that I've ever read. No, they don't obey. They, they don't abide by the, by the law they claim is theirs, and it's not really theirs, right? I mean, I, I've never read a, a story in the news that said some executive from Goldman Sachs came to some woman and said to her, you know, oh, it's a horrible thing. You've been widowed, and you've had your mortgage now for over seven years, so we're just going to forgive it. Right. I, I've never read of such an instance. So how can they claim to be the people who, to whom the law was given since they've never upheld the law? And whoever's written this must understand that, though, right? This article, it's not written by some idiot child who's living in a vacuum. It's written by somebody who's duplicitous and deceitful and treacherous. Well, absolutely, and that's the Paul bashers. That's what they are. That, that they're trying to undermine Christianity, and, and they're using certain um, comments by Paul, which are poorly understood by Christians, which are t poorly taught in Judeo-Christian churches, which are abused in Judeo-Christian churches to promote universalism, to promote all, all kinds of disgusting practices, and and and. Um, degenerating philosophies and and they they use them to undermine Christianity and it's not Paul's fault that he was misunderstood and, and quite often those are blatant mistranslations that they're taking advantage of and who's to blame so, for that I would say the mistranslators and the people who are using the mistranslations well, well, absolutely, but the, you know, most of the Paul bashers that I know would admit that there's many mistranslations in the Scripture, but then when it comes to Paul of Tarsus, they, they don't care about the mistranslations in the Scripture or the misunderstandings. They, they, they bought into Paul bashing because they have to blame somebody for universalism. It, universalism wasn't Paul's fault. Jesus Christ, Joshua Christ, predicted universalism. He prophesied universalism. The, the parable of the net is a prophecy of universalism. The parable of the wedding feast, the, the man without a wedding garment, that's a prophecy of universalism. John well, 3.16 is, is abused by universalists. The Great Commission in Matthew is abused by universalists. And well, none of those things mean what the universalists claim them to claim them for them to mean. Right, but since they're universalists and they want to be universalists, they want the Bible to be a universalist book, so they mistranslate, they distort, they twist, and they scrap a lot of things that don't fit. Absolutely. 
if universalism were valid, then there wouldn't be a separating of the wheat and the tares, and you could just cast your net and pull in everything, and everything would be good to go. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul compares the body of the anointed, who are the children of Israel, to a human body, and members of the body of the anointed to various body parts. Thereby, Paul illustrates that while we each have a specific function, which we must perform, must perform, and so we have many teachers and prophets and those people with other gifts, there are those with unattractive assignments which are just as necessary. While, each, while we each have our own task to perform in this life, whether male or female, master or servant, we are all nonetheless necessary, and we are all nonetheless valued. That's all Paul is trying to teach. In, in the context of his epistles, that's all he's trying to say, that we should esteem one another regardless of our position in life, that we should love and esteem one another regardless of our talents, so long as we're all Christian and Israel. Well, God is not a respecter of persons. Right. If you're, given a lot, if you're given a lot of talent or a lot of wealth or, or a lot of um, intuition or a, a lot of knowledge, well, well, you better, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? Right, but I, I guess Clay Douglas and his comrades, they would just say that if there's somebody that's highly intelligent, you should whack them on the head a few times and bring them down to the level of the average person. And if there's somebody who's really strong, well, you should break his elbows so he can't lift any weight. And, that's, that's the Marxist paradigm, right? To bring everybody down to the lowest common denominator. So if, if you can if run real fast, we should cripple one of your legs. It's um, it's his Weltanschauung. The, 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 whoever wrote this, Brother Nazariah or whoever it is, his worldview is entirely distorted, and and it's a very um. It's a very Marxist '60s hippie type worldview, and and that that got into the Christian churches in in the 1950s and 60s. I remember it. Uh, I remember the difference in the transformation from from a um, a Catholic grammar school with all old school type nuns for teachers, and 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 left there and and moved across town and went to a Catholic grammar school that had all recently graduated um, college kids. Most of the teachers were under 35, and, and it was a totally different environment. And it was a very liberal, Christian, um, hippie goddess-type environment. It was, it, it was sick. It, it was like going from, from p perhaps the stodgiest university in, in 19th century England and, and all of a sudden ending up in Southern California in the 60s, right? I remember um, Besmianov, the KGB defector, he addressed this in his talk at UCLA, I think it was in 84. He said that, you know, society can't function if half the people believe that Junior should be raised, you know, obedient, respectful, and disciplined, and the other half think he should be free to smear poop on the walls. That was exactly what he said. Wonderful. And really, you know, society can't function like that, though. I mean, if, if one nun wants to teach the child to respect the parents and to, you know, if you steal a cookie from the cookie jar, you get whacked on the the hand with a ruler. And the other nun in the, down the hall wants to say, you know, Junior can do whatever he wants. And his self-esteem is the most important thing. 
Isn't that what it's all about today? Feelings. Well, well, yes, to a great degree. Paul taught that Paul's basic teaching was that we should treat each other all as equals and all as brethren, but we each have our own, on the other hand, we each have our own role in life, and we should accept that role and do the best we can with it. Absolutely. And that's why he taught, that, that's why in Timothy he, he instructed uh, on slavery and said that if one is a slave, he should be happy being a slave unless he could gain his freedom by, by um, legitimate means, and then he should take advantage of that and gain his freedom. Because in Greece, you know, the Hebrews, the, the Hebrews, that the Old Testament had a law that your brother should be freed after X number of years in, in the year of redemption, in the year of release, but the Greeks, to the Greeks and Romans, slavery was a permanent condition unless you could purchase your way out of it, right? Even though they were also, on the other hand, they were liberal with slaves being able to own property. Roman slaves owned slaves themselves quite often. That's something that few people realize. Roman slaves, some Roman slaves acquired great wealth, having um, freedom to earn their own money well, when they weren't performing duties to their masters, and, and some of them acquired wealth and bought slaves themselves. All right. Reference 26, Clay Douglas states, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Confused? These are all statements made by Paul contained within the scriptures. Well, well yeah, right. If somebody writes 15 epistles or 14 lengthy epistles, you could easily um, pick things out of context, right? And, and lump them together and say, here, look at this, he's contradicting himself. If Romans chapter 7, verses 14 through 15, quoted here, confuses Douglas, it is likely due to his own failure to read the verses in context and understand the modicum of self-reflection necessary, and undertake the modicum of self-reflection necessary to understand what Paul is saying. These verses, along with others which Douglas has previously quoted, where Paul taught about temptation and the need for self-control, which we've discussed in, in prior segments of this, this series, In section 22 of this response, I believe it was, at Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, Paul discussed the struggle between the two natures of Adamic man, the carnal and the spiritual. While the law imposes a code of behavioral ethics upon us, which in the spirit we desire to follow, but the very brain chemicals which enable our bodies to function properly like to reproduce, they also compel us to sin, to desire things we ought not. That's what Paul's trying to describe here. And that's a, that, that's a constant struggle for all of us, for any man or woman. Being strong, we seek to overpower those desires. Yet sometimes being weak, we succumb to them. The non-Adamic races, and I have a lot of experience with this, the non-white races, especially the Negroes, seek immediate personal gratification and fulfillment of their lusts without even a thought of abstinence or self-control. And today, many Adamic people follow that same pattern, having rejected the controlling moral authority of the Spirit of God and the necessity to seek to follow it. Clayton Douglas, 
doesn't not understanding this, but criticizing Paul puts his lot with the scoffers and the sexual deviants. That's all Paul's trying to explain here. We all have weaknesses of the flesh that we have to, as good Christians, struggle to overcome. And sometimes, because we're men, we're going to fail. We're all going to fail at diverse times in our lives. That's all Paul's teaching. Right, but if you're going to fail, that doesn't mean you go out of your way to start a movement to change doctrine to accommodate your failures. Well, well, right, absolutely not. Otherwise, we have moral relativism. And once we have moral relativism, the Jew wins. That, that's what the Jew wants. Situation ethics, moral relativism, anything's good at any particular time. If you feel like, if you see a three-year-old child and, and you want to have sex with it, well, well, that's okay under certain circumstances. It's approved in the Talmud. It's approved in the Talmud. Oh, don't worry, the girl will grow her hymen back. And, and if by the time she's nine, it's a sick, the, the Jewish mind is a sick mind, and that's the mind that brings us atheism and moral relativism and humanism and, and rationalizes any perverse act at any given time. Absolutely, and that's what Spong did. He was a deviant, and instead of trying to suppress his deviancy or instead of putting it down some decent path, I mean, it's obvious he was suffering because he, he couldn't be intimate with his wife, but... Obviously, he should have gone on with celibacy. Failing that, I mean, he, he could have gotten a girlfriend, but he just wanted to take it all the way to, you know, the height of deviancy, and he went after a man. And then and instead of just leaving it at that, he tried to normalize that in the entire church so everyone would have to accept that deviancy. That's very arrogant, isn't it? I mean, he was trying to remake the world in his image. Well, all right, but they succeeded. He knew he would have the support. He knew he would have the media support. The, the liberal Marxists in, 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 in the Christian church in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they knew that they had the Jewish media support behind them to perpetrate the things that they did. They were very successful for that reason, so, swaying guess... the opinions of people. They saw the writing on the wall, and they knew that history was going to be on their side because the Jews control history. Well, well once you gain control of a nation's media and, it, and its publishing, yeah, you could pretty much do what you want. Well, once you gain control of its currency, you can do what you want, right? Right. We've seen that. It's the West was undermined. I mean, this is a lot deeper than John Spong. But why take these, why do Christians, the, the point here is not that, that this is all Marxist undermining. The point here is that Christians believe this trash and look at where it comes from. That's the point. Christians should reject John Spong. They should reject Jacqueline Prince. When a Graeber or a W.G. Finlay open their mouth and, and admit getting their material from a Jacqueline Prince, they should be ostracized immediately because you don't allow an Antichrist Jew to be a commentator on what is right and wrong in Christian doctrine. You don't allow that under any circumstance. You know, 
I've noticed it seems Christians can never have a gathering and discuss the Bible without having a rabbi on the panel. Whenever there's a a commentary documentary and they're discussing Christian scripture and, and the holy texts, they always have a rabbi or two on there to talk about it. And I'm wondering, why do we need a rabbi to comment on our book? Well, well rabbis are, 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 they are, everything that's, that, that's wrong with the world, that they are absolutely contrary to God. Right. And we, well, we if they deny Christ, Christians aren't to have anything to do with them whatsoever. Well, we expect them to do what they do. I mean, I, I expect the Marxists to subvert and the John Spongs to pervert and, and, and cause deviancy and try and bring it in. But I would also expect that Christians who have an IQ of at least room temperature would recognize it for what it is and then categorically reject it and then move on in life instead of embracing it. We expect the enemy to try and bring evil in. We expect them to do wrong, but what we what we hope right. for it should always be rejected. We, we would hope our... if a Jew moves his lips, he's lying. Right, and we would hope our people, our brothers and sisters, would recognize it for what it is and unite and reject it. Well, that's why we have to do this this series because many people, many identity Christians have accepted this Paul bashing, even with the sources it comes from. The root of all Paul bashing is Jewish first, right from the first century. And that's, that, that could be exemplified today also, which we've done to a great degree. But, but because people have addressed, because they've accepted this, this has to be addressed. It, it has to be documented. Absolutely. Point 27. Clay Douglas states, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I am become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being without law toward God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-25. What does this mean? Be anyone, be anything, and do anything to just accomplish results. Why, Paul was a human chameleon and an expert mentalist. Well, as an aside... These Paul bashing letters have tried to be all things to all people. They've tried to present themselves as patriots, worried about the Jewish problem, which Paul doesn't take seriously, to win over the patriots who are concerned about the Jewish problem. They've also tried to say that Paul was a repressed homosexual. They've also tried to say Paul treated women poorly to win over people who you know, have that feminist angle. So this sophistry has tried to be all things to all people, and it was written by a chameleon who changes his arguments from paragraph to paragraph. To continue, a conjuring trick is generally regarded by magicians as consisting of an effect and a method. The effect is what the spectator sees. The method is the secret behind the effect and allows the effect to take place. Peter Lamont and Richard Weissman, Magic in Theory. Well, that's nice. Douglas is quoting Jewish magicians, right? <laughs> well, I... I <laughs> It's almost too much, you know. This is rich. It's really rich. 
the the um the context of one Corinthians chapter nine is Paul's teaching of the gospel to the lost nations of Israel. How do we know it's to the lost nations of Israel? Well, there's a word in in one Corinthians nine seventeen, and it's simply it, it's simply dispensation in the King James version, and it's stewardship. I'm sorry, it might be, it, it might be, yes, it's stewardship in the King James Version and it's dispensation in the American Standard Version. That word means more than that. That word is oikonomia, okay? There's a lot of ways to say dispensation or stewardship. There are other ways to say it in Greek, right? But this word is oikonomia. And oikonomia is the management, it's to manage a family. It's the management of a family. Therefore, if I announce the good message, it is not a subject of boasting to me. In necessity, it is laid upon me, since woe to me if I would not announce the good message. For I do this readily. I have a reward. But if involuntarily I had been entrusted with the management of a family, that's what Paul is saying. What then is my reward? He's talking about the spread of the gospel to the dispersed people of Israel. He explains that in, in Romans chapter 4, where he explains that the faith of Abraham is Abraham's belief that his seed, his offspring, would become many nations. And Paul knew who and where they were. That's why he went to the white nations of Europe. That's the Christian identity story. His epistles prove again and again that he knew that the tribes that he went to, the tribes that he mentioned, the tribes that he preached to, the Scythians, the Illyrians, the Galatians, certain Greek tribes, and the Romans, he knew they were all dispersed Israelites. His gospels prove it again and again. His, his epistles, I'm sorry. Now, if that is the context of 1 Corinthians 9.19, and he goes on to explain that he became a Judean to the Judeans and, and that he became as one subject to law to those subject to law. He can say that because he was educated in the, in, in the ways of Judea. He was educated in the Old Testament. He was educated in the Judean religion. He was educated in the law. And when he appears as not being subject to law to those who are not subject to law, when he appears as an outsider to the outsiders because he's seeking to convert the dispersed Israelites, the lost Israelites of the Greek, Roman, Galatian, and, and Germanic tribes, he can do that. He can do that because he was also educated in the pagan literature. He had a very fine education in the pagan literature. Paul was an individual uniquely qualified to take the gospel to the lost nations of Israel. And indeed, he fulfilled that task. Above anything, Christian identists should understand that because they claim to understand the dispersions of ancient Israel. They claimed to understand who the lost sheep were. So above all, they should understand that aspect of Paul's mission.
Paul, being born in Tarsus, which was a city of great learning, and educated in the classics as well as in Judaism, was qualified to explain the meaning of the gospel and the Old Testament scripture to pagans, to those outside the law, as he says, as Douglas scoffs here, as well as to Judeans or those under the law. All the other apostles couldn't do that. All the other apostles, not having any such education as Paul's, did not have the tools necessary to do what was required. They did not have the tools necessary to identify the lost Israelites so that they may receive the gospel, which was the purpose, which was Paul's purpose. Paul also explains that he means to speak to people on their own terms and not with the pretense of superiority and authority that the, the, the Judean rabbis, and which we also see in, in today's churchianity, the techniques that they employ with abandon. Douglas charges Paul as a human chameleon and an expert mentalist, which is rather more descriptive of John Spong, the liberal humanist homosexual dressed up as a Christian bishop. That's, an, that, that's a human chameleon. Then Douglas goes on to quote a book about magic. That's the second magic book he quoted in this article. He, quote, he opened his article with a quote from another magic book from, from somebody named Saul Stein. And guess what Saul Stein is? He's also a Jew, right? Darn, I would have thought for, with a name like Saul Stein, I thought he was maybe Norwegian or Irish. He's right. <laughs> the, the fact that Douglas consistently quotes from such sources certainly elucidates the substance of his own education and, and intellectual pursuits, or, or whoever Douglas's writer is, Brother Nazariah or not, that the... Um, in contrast, Paul of Tarsus himself once said to a Jewish magician who had opposed him, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? Acts 13.10. That, that's Paul's response to magicians, right? All right. I wonder, at some point, should we try and get Brother Nazariah on here? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Do you want to take a crack at it? But but he's only coming on here to be lambasted. Now, what what is Brother Nazariah exactly? Is he a converso? He, he he's a hippie clown. He he might have been a Jew. I don't know. He's a hippie clown that claims to be a follower of the original Essenes. Well, how do we know what the original Essenes taught? Well, well, we know very little about what they thought, and the only thing that the only source we really have for an understanding of the Essenes is from Flavius Josephus. Now, now, a lot of people attribute the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Essenes, and we'll be addressing that in this series at length. The Dead Sea Scrolls did not belong to the Essenes. All right. Reference 28. Clay Douglas states, another good example of the Talmudic flavoring Paul added to the New Testament remains the communion. Paul's ritual, which is the drinking of the blood and the eating of the body of Jesus Christ, is nothing more than satanic cult worship. This is vampirism and cannibalism at best. 
shall we dare to be open and honest about it, or is it easier to remain deaf, blind, and dumb? I'm, I'm sorry, I'm cracking it up because I remember when we were doing the Russian Bolshevism series, and when I was at Gerald's reading the books on this, this was a common Bolshevik atheist charge back in the 1890s, 1910s, 1920s, that Christians practiced cannibalism because they were eating what they called was the body of Christ. And this is textbook Marxism. This is a, a, this is a historic Marxist insult against Christianity. It's 150 years old. It, it's ridiculous, and it shows you Douglas is a Marxist. or Whoever wrote this, he's looking at the world through Marxist glasses. This claim that this charge against Christianity is more than 150 years old, right? Right. It goes back, as it's recorded as early as the Roman historian Tacitus, this charge of cannibalism against Christians. I'm, pre- I'm fairly certain it's recorded in Tacitus. And it's definitely recorded in Tertullian. Who wrote a hundred years after Tacitus, about 180 to 200 A.D.? Yes, it is. As demonstrated throughout his, this response to Douglas's articles, Douglas, while rejecting Paul, also rejects much of the New Testament, along with much of the Old Testament, and thereby is shown to have adopted all the positions of the Jews themselves. This is one of the earliest Jewish slanders against Christians. Paul discusses the bread, the body of Christ, and the wine, or the cup of the New Testament in the blood of Christ, at 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. But nowhere does Paul instruct or insinuate that communion was to become the pages religious ritual that the Roman church later made it. Douglas implies that it was Paul who prescribed this ritual. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul only describes the actions of Yahshua Christ at the Last Supper and his instructions to the eleven, not counting Judas the Jew, for them to partake of the bread and the wine in his memory. The actual body and blood of Christ, while a mystery to the Roman church, are the Israelite brethren sitting around a table, which Paul explains at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 14 through 22, and at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 26 to 34. Now, Paul's explanation is purposely enigmatic, and some words are poorly translated in the King James Version. But Douglas's Talmudic charge is plainly ridiculous. It's quite clear that at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25, Paul is only repeating, that which I also delivered unto you, what he had received, he taught the Corinthians. And that is found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 29. Paul didn't write Matthew. It's found, that the description of the Last Supper communion, in Mark 14, verses 22 through 25. In Luke chapter 22, verses 17 through 20, Paul didn't write any of those things. Now, while the true meaning of communion needs to be treated at length, this is not the time to do that. But it is obvious that Paul is only following Yahshua Christ, as his words were recorded by all four gospel writers. Yet while John did not record Yahshua's words concerning the bread and wine at the Last Supper, he did leave us with a much fuller account where Yahshua discussed the same thing at length in the discourse on the bread of life 
in John chapter 6, verses 31 to 65. Clayton Douglas has again adopted the position of the Jews, who could not understand how Christ could call himself the bread of life and advise his disciples to drink his blood, which it says in John chapter 6, verse 53. The Gospel of John was written, according to all witnesses, 30 years after Paul was dead. So it's not Paul's fault that Douglas understand, that does not, does not understand these things and lacks discretion of whom he follows or from what sources he follows. Because this is, this is the earliest Jewish slanders against Christianity right here. And Douglas has become their partner. All right. Are you there? Reference 29. Clay Douglas states, and let us be again honest with ourselves regarding the pagan misspelled holiday of Easter. Let us try to practice common sense. Why have we all been taught to give sacrifices of pigs and eggs, fertility, and celebration of the terrible, tortured death of Esu Emmanuel, Jesus Christ? I know, I know. We purportedly celebrate his having risen. We offer up canned ham and chocolate bunnies because Christ rose from the dead. So, wait, this is Paul's fault now because people do something stupid 2,000 years after Paul lived and died, that they want to have ham on Easter, and somehow that's Paul's to blame for this? Wow. Man, Douglas is a clown. So he says, let's be honest, and then he proceeds to tell lie after lie. Well, well, right. I mean, what does the pagan holiday of Easter have to do with Paul of Tarsus? Right. So. It's mentioned in Acts chapter 12, verse 4 in the King James Version, but the word in Greek is Pascha, and Pascha refers to the Passover. It has nothing to do with Easter. Acts 12.4 is talking about the Passover. The word is Pascha. It's Pascal in Hebrew with an L at the end. I believe the original Hebrew also had that. But the Greek did not. Pascha is the Passover it's the Passover all throughout the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the scriptures, which were translated 300 years before Paul. It's the Passover. There's no Easter in Paul's epistles. There's no Easter in Paul's teaching. I can only wonder how anyone may possibly imagine that Paul had anything to do with Easter. And the ignorance here is incredible to blame Paul for Easter. Well, it's not ignorance, it's dishonesty. Well, right, it's, it's absolute dishonesty. The, the, the only place that the word Easter appears, in the, even in the King James Version, is at Acts 12.4. So when some Jewish commentator or a friend of the Jews writes, let's be honest, you, you need to immediately throw up your, your, your defenses. Yes. I'm sorry, the Hebrew word is Pesach. Hebrew number 8453, and that's what that was transliterated as Pascha in Greek. But the Masoretic Hebrew doesn't necessarily represent the original, right? Uh, it's not Paul's fault that the lost tribes of, of Israel adopted the pagan Easter festival. It, it, it is a pagan festival. It's ancient. It dates back to Babylon. It's all about fertility. And it comes from, Easter comes from Ishtar. 
the Babylonian fertility goddess. But it's pagan. It has nothing to do with the New Testament. It has nothing to do with Polytarsus. The Roman church later adopted it because they couldn't... Because Rome had a hard time um, Christianizing pagans, even though they became Christians in name and they went to church on Sundays, they still wanted to hold their pagan rituals, and, and we still do today. Well, at least many so-called Christians still do today. So, but that's not Politarsus's fault. He never talked about Easter. It's ridiculous that this charge is ridiculous. Can't lay that just, at Paul's feet. Just because the Roman Church accepted swine eaters, that doesn't mean that that's Paul's fault. Paul doesn't advocate eating swine anywhere in his epistles. It's also um, historically evident, and this is in Strabo's Geography, Book 12, Chapter 8, that the Greeks considered swine to be unclean. They knew it was unclean, but a lot of Greeks ate it anyway. But the Greeks knew it was unclean, Strabo, Geography, Book 12, Chapter 8, Paragraph 9. The Greeks knew that eating swine was unclean. But they ate it anyway. A lot of them ate it anyway. A lot of the Greek cities did not eat swine. There, there were Greek temples which rejected the sacrifice of swine and, and wouldn't allow swine in, in, the, um, in the precincts. Strabo describes a um, Comanus, a city in, in Pontus, where you couldn't even bring swine into the city. So the Greeks were divided on the issue. The Greco-Roman world was divided on the issue. The Romans ate just about anything. That, that's evident in their own artwork. They ate anything. Reference 30. Clay Douglas states, Never mind that Esu was lost to us forever. Okay, so I, I guess he doesn't believe the revelation. He doesn't believe Jesus' own promise to come again, and he's a Sadducee, so when you're dead, you're dead. We are taught to celebrate his murder at Easter time each year. What kind of diabolical minds could come up with this horrible ritual? Why do we do it? Have we all lost our minds? Well, why doesn't he ask what kind of diabolical minds could come up with a conspiracy to kill an innocent man? So, really, though, Christ was lost to us forever? Has Douglas read the Bible? Well, well, he's had the land. he's not a Christian, right? Well, I, I'm guessing maybe, maybe he, he's read the short version of the Talmud. <laughs> right. Here we have it again. First, we must reiterate: Paul can't be blamed for Easter, nor the way which the Roman Church has chosen to commemorate the death and res resurrection of Christ. Paul can't be blamed for that. You won't find it in his epistles. Paul advised Christians to keep the Feast of Passover. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. Let me pull that up. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. Now, now, that is a, um, a reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is coinciding with the Passover, right? The Passover is a time where you should have no leaven in your house. And Paul goes on to say, and this is absolutely true, Christ is the Lamb of God. And Paul goes on to say, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And that is, a, it is actually a... Um, a, a generic Greek word referring to a feast day, but the word Passover in verse 7 
is the feast that he's referring to, and that word is Pascha, and it means the Passover. Let us keep the feast. Paul's telling Christians to keep the Passover feast as a commemoration of Christ. He's not telling them to celebrate Easter. So, so that's totally dishonest again. And Douglas makes himself a fool for not reading that before condemning the apostle. Yet Douglas here again betrays himself to be a follower of the Jews. He's not a Christian. If you believe that Christ was lost to us forever, then you're a Jew. You or, may as well, or, or a pagan or whatever. If you were a pagan, you wouldn't care about Christ to be saying something like that, right? So, so it's, a corrupt view, it's a corrupt view of Christianity, and basically it makes himself a, a religious Jew, even if he's not a real Jew, a genetic Jew. Fellow traveler. Right. Reference 31. Clay Douglas states, in Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Jesus warned about the danger of false prophets that lead many astray. How, how rich and ironic that we're being told to watch out for false prophets by a bunch of false prophets. Right. They are dangerous. More people have, more false prophets have quoted that verse than, than true ones, I'm sure. They are dangerous because if you believe their lies, they will change you internally. They can affect who you really are and your eternal destiny. They come and deceive by presenting falsehood as the truth. This sounds like Graber, Finlay... Yakum Prince, Jesus gave warning of them because they do not appear as the wolves they really are, but as friends of the flock. They come wearing sheep's clothing, the garments of the shepherd. They appear as those who come to feed and lead the flock, but instead they feed off the flock and exploit it for their own gain. Second Peter 2.1 well, well, first, anybody who understands the sovereignty of God, anyone who understands that all of the children of Israel are saved in Christ, Anyone who understands that we have no further sacrifice to make because Christ has made a sacrifice on behalf of all of the children of Israel already, that that price was paid once at the cross, should understand that false prophets cannot affect your eternal destiny because you've been bought with a price and ye are not your own, and no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. That's Christian. Nobody can affect your eternal destiny. You're either born from above or you're not. So, so that's another antichrist humanist belief, which we also saw with Graeber, the Paul Basher. We saw that he was a humanist where he pretended that he was the captain of his own soul and made that statement very explicitly. Well, he said, we are captains of our own destiny. Yes. It is simply incredible that Douglas could make a citation from 2 Peter chapter 2 here, which he does. And yet another nefarious but lame attempt to portray Paul of Tarsus as something other than truthful. He overlooks what Peter specifically said about Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3. Just a little further on in the same short epistle, Peter said, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles speaking in them of the things in which are some things hard to be understood, 
which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, under their own destruction. Peter is accrediting Paul. Douglas tries to use something Peter said against Paul. Peter himself is accrediting Paul. That's absolutely hypocritical. Clayton Douglas is, is a deceiver or, or an idiot. One or the other, he has to be one or the other. He's either a purposeful deceiver or he's an idiot. Whoever wrote it. Earlier in this writing, I think it was about three or four programs ago, they made light of the fact that Paul repeatedly, or at least frequently, on a number of instances, wrote, believe me, you know, I tell you the truth, I speak the truth, this is the truth. And they said that that's how liars typically present themselves. They insist they're telling you the truth. But a few paragraphs ago, they started one of the references with, let us be honest. Well, what are, are they implying that they previously weren't being honest and now it's time to be honest? So they, they condemn Paul for opening a letter with, you know, I speak the truth or this is no lie. But then they want to write, we are being honest. Let us be honest. Do, do they think we have a very short memory and we don't remember that point 19 is hypocritical in regards to point 28? I mean, it's very insulting. All of this has been insulting to anybody with a real intellect. I haven't met an honest Paul Basher yet. I have not met an honest Paul Basher yet. I have not met somebody who could actually find a serious, honest fault with Paul's epistles that can't be addressed easily by understanding that either some words are poorly translated or something's being taken out of context, and that that context could easily be cleared up. I have not met an honest Paul Besher yet. That they are all emotionally triggered, that they despise certain passages in Paul which are abused by Judeo-Christians, and they run off into Paul Besher. And it's a slippery slope. Reference 32. Reference 32. Clay Douglas states, Esu Emmanuel never knew Saul Paul. Esu's and Saul's paths never crossed. But Jesus, Esu, did know of Paul and Paul's efforts to capture and to kill him. He did? Wow. Let us also remember that Jesus, despite this, never stopped attacking the Jewish hierarchy. Also, Esu hadn't chosen which of his disciples was the worthiest to use he used to keep a team of 12 disciples for practical reasons. 12 is small enough to establish a dialogue among that group and big enough to include various tendencies among the population of the time. Oh, oh so we need a sampling. <laughs> well, he chose 12 because it was a scientific sample, right? So, like, like he was doing a marketing assay. <laughs> so he wants something for everyone. Is it a chameleon religion? And I, I wonder... Paul must have been pretty young then since he was persecuting Jesus. Was he doing this before or after he joined and then deserted the Roman army? Well, well right. It, it's ridiculous because Douglas opened up this article by claiming that Paul never knew Jesus. Right. So he, he never knew him, but he was vigorously pursuing him and trying to kill him. Right. He never knew Jesus according to the flesh, he said, at the beginning of this article. And I'm confused, too, because if Paul was vigorously pursuing Jesus, trying to capture and kill him, I mean, I haven't read every book from antiquity, but 
is there a source on this? I, I would that, like to read it. That there is absolutely no source, zero source. Maybe, it's maybe just the, a total contrivance. It's a it's a Jewish mystery novel. Maybe the footnote will say, um, "See comic book so and so, 1989, Yakum Prince." Right. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. As he vaguely pointed at Peter as his successor, but gave extraordinary powers and mission to all his apostles, Jesus never chose nor approved of genocidal Paul to be his spokesman. To accept otherwise is a mockery of God. Well, wait. If they never met, how would he choose or approve Paul? So if they never met, his failure to choose Paul would be meaningless because they never met. And earlier in this article... Didn't they officially state that Peter was chosen as the successor and then help you know, um, collaborate with Paul to build the Catholic Church? So when they say he vaguely pointed at Peter as his successor, wow, this is, this is science fiction here. This would make a, an interesting Jewish Hollywood drama film. Well, well, right. There's no, there's no, a, a, a dead God needs a successor, right? Well, Jesus even living, said that he, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. A living God just needs a successor. And uh, I'm wondering, he ends this with, to accept otherwise is a mockery of God. Well, wow, that's very authoritative on his part. So if you disagree with the statement he just made, you hate God. It's not, you don't disagree with Clay Douglas. You mock God. So Clay Douglas is now an emissary of God? Apparently, Douglas attempts here to clarify some of the ambiguities in the plot to a novel that he had begun probably about midway through the article. But that still doesn't make it real. Paul of Tarsus was described by Luke as a neanius. That's a word for young man. It's a young man, a youth, which he must have been since he was quite still robust when he was sent off to Rome 30 years later. So he must have been a young man when he first had, had his first um, experiences with Christianity in the stoning of Stephen. That's when he's described as a young man by Luke. The, um, the Roman procurator Festus, who sent Paul to Rome, held that office from 59 to 62 A.D., so it was 30 years later that Paul was sent to Rome. In a society such as Judea, which was governed by elders who were always given deference, Paul could not have had the position of authority which Douglas claims for him. Paul couldn't have had it. Everything that he did in Damascus was with license from the elders of the community, and that's explicit in the book of Acts. Peter was never appointed as a successor to Christ. To Christ. Dead men and dead gods need successors. Christ is a living God. He needs no successor. Many fools mimicking the Roman church point to Matthew 16, 18 and claim that the church was built upon Peter and that's a lie. That's also based on a mistranslation. Because Christ said, you are Petros, a stone, and upon this Petra, bedrock, Will I build my church? Now, we can't see in the message of the gospel, we can't see any motions or signs or, or pointing that Christ did when he said those words. 
but he made a clear distinguishment in the Greek between Petros and Petra. And Peter goes on in his epistles to say that we are all living stones, using the, the, the plural of that word. So, so we, we have Peter acknowledging that he's no different than the other stones that make up the body of Christ. In his own epistle, we're all living stones, he says. Each of us is a living stone, is what he says. So Peter isn't, um, isn't claiming any special office for himself. Peter's not claiming to be the Petra, the, the bedrock upon which the assembly of God is built. And that's what Christ said. He made a clear distinguishment. Douglas is suddenly concerned here with making a mockery of God, which absolutely, it's absolutely bewildering, right? Throughout his article, Douglas has quoted Friedrich, God is dead, Nietzsche, John Spong, the embracer of aliens and sexual deviance. He, he quoted a host of foul characters, Jewish magicians. Who's making a mockery of God? Douglas has said that Christ wasn't the, the, the Messiah come to save anyone. Didn't he say that early in his article? If he, I recall, yes. He's probably hoping we forget that. Well, well right. Douglas has made a, this article has made a mockery of, of the Christian God ever from, right from the beginning. Oh, the, the, the next one, this is great. Reference 33, Clay Douglas states, after having more or left, left Peter in charge of his disciples, Jesus disappeared. Well, what, did he have the aid of one of those Jewish magicians that Douglas has been quoting? I, I don't recall in the gospel when, you know, um, Jesus said to Peter, I'm leaving now, goodbye, and then he, he just left and never returned. I mean, may, maybe it happened, then I just missed that page. They forgot to print that into my Bible. I don't recall Jesus disappearing. His message being rather confusedly understood by the humans of his time. Well, it's not my fault that Douglas doesn't understand the message. So he wants to say people back then didn't understand it because he doesn't understand it. Continuing. After all, his writings had simply disappeared. So either his writings disappeared, he disappeared, or they both disappeared. I don't remember Jesus actually writing anything specifically, did he? I mean, there's no the manifesto according to Jesus. Well, well there's the secret scrolls that Douglas had been. <laughs> So what he, he 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 let me guess he found a pair of special glasses and then he found a tablet and he was able to see all the secret writing on the tablet when he was wearing the special glasses. Right. And then when he took some special mushrooms, he was able to see even super secret special writing. <laughs> right. Peter had the official responsibility of taking over, insofar as there was a takeover, as Jesus never tried to set up any hierarchy or sect around himself. A fact to be remembered, Jesus warned us about churches. But another, another disciple was soon to emerge and transform the influence of Jesus' life on the world. Dark blue velvet curtains open, spotlights come on, enter Saul. But when he says another disciple was soon to emerge, what does he consider soon? Thirty years later, is that soon? And he's already made it clear that Jesus pointed to Peter and vaguely acknowledged he was a successor. Now he says that there is no Peter takeover if there could even be such a thing, if there was such a takeover, and that Jesus never tried to set up a hierarchy. And then he's saying, though, that Paul just comes on from nowhere, even though supposedly he never met Jesus, but he spent his entire life trying to kill him when he was, what, eight years old? This is ridiculous. And it, honestly, it, it's not my fault 
Clay Douglas doesn't understand scripture, or the idiot who wrote this, he wants to project himself onto the people of antiquity. Since he doesn't understand the Bible, people back then surely couldn't have understood the Bible. Well, well, right. That this whole and I, I don't know. I, it's it's absurd, but it has to be addressed. It, this has to be pointed out. Douglas states that Christ's message was rather confusedly understood by the humans of his time, as if that were just a statement of fact. It, it's ridiculous. I would challenge Douglas to show us where Christ warned us about churches. It's not in the Scripture. He would never be able to do so. Even in the Revelation, in the message to the seven churches, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, something good was said by Yahshua to each of the churches. Most of them were also criticized, but some of them weren't criticized at all. The churches at Philadelphia and Smyrna were not criticized at all. So, so there was no general warning concerning the evils of churches, because that word doesn't even mean church as we know it. The word is assembly. There's no warning about churches in general. Notice that Douglas, after developing the plot for his novel, creates a theatrical scene depicting the entrance of Saul of Tarsus, which must have been drawn right out of the magician books that he has quoted several times in his paper. I thought it came it, out of Jewish vaudeville. Well, well right. It, it may as well be, but that, that's related anyway. It's a related field anyway. It, it's... um. It's absurd, and, and it's, uh, I don't know, it's, I'm not intrigued by it. It, it may, perhaps some of the um, most unlearned among Christians could be intrigued by this, this article, but uh, it's, I'm not intrigued at all by it. This article's a farce. Well, well it's become a farce, and, and some, of, some parts of it uh, are very cunning and... and um, We'll see that a little later when we get to the, por the portion of this article addressing the Dead Sea Scrolls, because that I've seen, and, and there are other people unrelated to Douglas and unrelated to Brother Nazariah, who have attempted to use the Dead Sea Scrolls to discredit Paul of Tarsus. One of those people was named Joseph Jeffers, who, who managed to get himself a, a, a little... Um, half New Age, half Christian identity following in, in the American Southwest a few years ago. Well, this writing is fairly cunning, but if you read the whole, the, the whole article and you keep in mind the points that you're reading along the way, and you, and you can remember those when you get to another point that's contradicted by something you read several hours ago, it all starts to fall apart. It's just a house of cards. But what they're hoping is if they ramble on and have 95 or 100 references, when you get to 98, you won't remember what they wrote on 17 or 22, and you won't realize that they've contradicted themselves repeatedly and that they're lying. Or they adopt one position, and then they adopt a completely diametrically opposed position later on in the paper. It's a chameleon. The author who wrote this is a chameleon. Well, well he's absolutely done that. He's done that very clearly. Paul never knew Christ, and, and then... Paul was the secret agent tracking Christ for his entire ministry, trying to kill him. Come on. Uh, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but people, people heed this stuff. I, I don't believe it, but they do. 
and and therefore it has to be addressed. I have to keep making that point, otherwise perhaps listeners will wonder why I'm addressing something which is so obviously insipid, but but um, it has to be done. Not only that, but while he was tracking Christ, he was also on the lamb because he was a deserter from the Roman army. So instead of being concerned with lying low to avoid being bludgeoned to death or crucified for deserting a Roman legion, he spends his time moving from village to village trying to track and kill Christ, which absolutely makes no sense. If you're on the run from the most powerful nation in the world, you're probably not concerned about working as a bounty hunter. Well, well, why are the high priests mentioned in, in Scripture and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and, and the different contentions they had with Christ? And why is it so clear that, that um, the high priests are plotting to kill Christ all throughout Scripture? It's mentioned several times. And, and there's no mention of Saul of Tarsus, and, and he has no association with the high priests until, as a, as a zealous young man, he, he um, seeks to become a defender of what he believes is the faith. I mean, he believed in Judaism, and, and, and so did most zealous young men. Look, look at the trouble that um, Nicodemus had understanding Christ. That he was his mind was Judaized by the Pharisees and and the the rabbis of the time. He had a hard time understanding Christ. John chapter three is all about that. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but he wasn't a bad Pharisee. Christ ate and dined and taught Pharisees all the time. The people he really had the contention with and, and really had nothing to do with were the Sadducees, and and the Sadducees were the high priests at the time. And Paul was not a Sadducee, he was a Pharisee. And obviously John Spong is a modern Sadducee, and Clay Douglas is a disciple of this Sadducee, which makes him basically a Sadducee himself. Right. The Sadducees, they were deniers of everything spiritual. That's explained by Josephus. It's explained in the Gospels. It's explained by Luke. They, they were the deniers of everything spiritual, and it's the Sadducees who were high priests. And Acts chapter 5 proves that. The Sadducees were the high priests at the time of the crucifixion. All right. Reference 34. Okay, well, we're going to leave it here. Well, we're going to leave it here. It's, it's um, rather late. And, and we'll address this next week, and, and we'll come back to this. That There are points that there are. Douglas's articles do make some more cunningly contrived points, and, and they have to be addressed. And, and in order to address them, we have to address some of the ridiculous assertions, like the, the, the assertions concerning Easter that we saw tonight, but, but still it, 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 it has to be addressed in its entirety. And, and we'll pick up here next week. Well, I think Douglas is just digging himself a deeper and deeper hole, isn't he? Well, well right, and, and Paul Bashers really don't have a leg to stand on. And and that can be proven. And, and I've I've said it before in this series. If any of the the, the prominent Paul bashers, Ralph Daigle, Jerry Kirk, if Jerry Kirk, if you want to look like an idiot, um, I, I'd invite them to come here and talk to me about polytarsis and, and try to present try to present some real solid academic arguments backed up with scriptural evidence. And, and historical evidence, and I'll, I'll I'll have a discussion 
on How those points. Po- They're just going to go off about Judas Icarius right. and some, some other character from a novel. If anybody wants to email me points that they have, points of contention that they have with Paul of Tarsus, I will, I will as long as they're reasonable, I don't get, you know, ridiculous trolls I don't have a need for. As long as they're reasonable, I will address them. We can address them before the end of this series. Excellent. So we will pick up next week then. Yes, praise Yahweh and, and thanks for being here and, and we'll I'll be here with Amos Part five on Friday. Thank you. Next week we we won't pick up next week. Next week I'll be here with um pastors Mark Downing and Ken Land and we're going to discuss the United States Constitution. Ah, all right. Again, that might be an interesting program. And we'll be here in two weeks with with Against the Paul Bashers part fourteen. All right. Praise, praise Yahweh. Yahweh. Good night.